Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Donald Trump is the third president to have been impeached, although he's the only one to have been impeached twice. And every one of those impeachment trials have ended in acquittal. So how significant are they really in the end? Brenda Wineapple was a guest on the show in July 2019 to discuss the impeachment of Andrew Johnson in 1868, the subject of her book, The Impeachers, which was published by Random House. And we've invited her back on this President's Day to discuss the two impeachment trials of Donald Trump and how they fit into American history. Hi, Brenda. Welcome back to our show. Can you hear me? I can. Can Brenda, I suspect you couldn't help comparing the Trump impeachment trial with the one that you've written about. Do they have things in common? Hi, Leonard. <laughs> well, <laughs> the the most salient thing they had in common was in both cases, um, from my point of view, guilty men were acquitted. <laughs> mm. um, so that's, uh, that's something right there. Um, the vote against uh, Johnson's acquittal was small by comparison mm. to um, <clears throat> to it, Donald Trump's. Just um, one vote. But I, yeah, just one vote. But I think in the case of um, you know in the case of the Johnson uh, impeachment trial, there were eleven articles of impeachment, mm. which could it, it, you know could have gotten very confusing. And, it, and in fact, it really didn't, because the bulk of the impeachment acquittal or conviction rested on the 11th article. And in yeah. a sense, what the managers did in the Donald Trump impeachment trial was focus everything on that one impeachment article. And what they did, and I thought, rather brilliantly, in fact, um, what they did was take that uh, article, which was, you know, incitement for an, you know, an insurrection, and then they expanded it to show that incitement isn't a single act. And I thought they did that very handily, rather than have 11 articles that, you know, build around a case. The primary charge in the Andrew Johnson impeachment was that he had violated the Tenure of Office Act. Um, How relevant, which you can explain, I'm sure, very quickly, but I was wondering how relevant were his views on how the South should be dealt with in the aftermath of the Civil War? Was that just in the background? No, it it wasn't. If you were alive in 1868 when the impeachment trial took place, now in 2020, it seems like, and I think for most of the 20th century, it seemed like that whatever Johnson's white supremacist views or whatever his views of the South were, uh, were irrelevant because everything was focused on tenure of office. And people today, and even I think in the 19th century, thought, tenure of office. What's that? You know, Mm. and in fact, it was later found to be an unconstitutional law. But the um, the House and the Senate had passed tenure of office to protect Edwin Stanton, who is the secretary of war. And the secretary of war was protecting the army and the army was protecting black voters or would be voters and black citizens and white Republicans who were allied with blacks in the South. So basically, the Tenure of Office Act was passed in order to protect the black citizens Mm. of the South. 
Well, Donald Trump has been accused of using the race card. Do you see any similarities there? Absolutely. No doubt about it. And I didn't hear this in the impeachment manager's uh, testimony, but I think the implication was that look at these mobs, look at the Proud Boys, or look at the groups of people who were the rioters, marauders, um, insurgents at the Capitol. They were, I think, almost entirely, if not entirely, white. Um, And had... And, and, you know, what was so interesting was that when there were Black Lives you know, Matter protests that were going on, particularly in Washington, uh, Trump had used uh, the military to, uh, to clear Lafayette Square. I mean, that's remarkable. And yet he didn't call out the National Guard here. So what is no, that? No, I was... A- I was amused by something you quoted from the New York Times, uh, their assessment of the Andrew Johnson trial in 1868. They wrote it at the Mm -hmm. time, quote, there has been more point blank lying done in Washington during the past week (laughs) than ever before in the same space of time. And that's saying a great deal. And that could have been written about what happened this past week as well. Yeah, I think that's true, except again, and I would point this out because I thought they were heartbreakingly brilliant, except in the case of the managers, really, um, who didn't lie at all, didn't seem to me. I mean, they had such overwhelming uh, evidence, and a lot of it was visual evidence. You just had a look at some of those tapes. But yes, enormous amount of lying. Um, It's very distressing. You named your book The Impeachers, not The Impeachment. Mm-hmm. Would you do the same if you were writing about the Trump impeachments? I don't think I would. Um, in fact, I don't, I, I'm, no, I wouldn't. Um, I named the book that way because I wanted to draw attention the groups of people, white and black, who stood against the white supremacist policies of Andrew Johnson. And I wanted to suggest that and, and show that there wasn't one person um, or a handful of persons. This was after the war, and there were people of goodwill who wanted to, the, you know, to pull the country in a very different direction. An opportunity had opened. Horrific though it was, the Civil War had opened an opportunity to finally get the country going toward where it was supposed to go, a more perfect union. And I wanted to draw attention to those people um, and issues, really, that uh, were pulling in that direction. Today, I'm not sure that I could do the same in that way, because I, I think, and maybe it's because we're too close to it, that um, that there are numbers. There are, what, 80 million, 81 million people who voted for Joe Biden. And I think mm-hmm. they were Democrats, Independents, and Republicans. Um, so, you know, perhaps it would be called the 80 million or something. <laughs> My guest is Brenda Wineapple. We're talking about impeachments, plural, on uh, today. <laughs> Today's Leonard Lopate at large show on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. The constitutionality, politics, and legacy of, of Andrew Johnson's impeachment and, and, and reconstruction have been debated for a century and a half now. Now, the, the Clinton impeachment has been largely forgotten, uh, maybe because it was uh, much ado about very little, but many feel the legacy of this one will be felt for a long time. 
Oh, I think there's no doubt about it. And when you just think in, the, in terms of the sheer numbers, there have been four impeachments in United States history, and two of them were Donald Trump, were because of mm. Donald Trump. I mean, that's just, you know, remarkable when you think about it in that particular sense. And you can say that the impeachment um, of, you know, Bill Clinton was waged for sure with partisan fury, um, but that it was really um, over uh, something that that no one thought was really that disturbing to the national peace, the national welfare. It had to do with Clinton's sex life. Yeah. Uh, Johnson avoided being removed from office by one vote in the Senate. Isn't there some debate over how Kansas Senator Edmund Ross's vote was gained? Um, and do you think that JFK should have included him in his book profiles in Courage? Absolutely not. But when JFK or Ted Sorensen or whoever wrote that book, and it was written in, I think, 1956, it won a Pulitzer the next year, um, the reigning idea about the Johnson impeachment was that the person, uh, Edmund Ross of Kansas, who stood up, you know, it was the seventh vote, the Republicans against this, you know, against this heinous uh, president, stood up against his own party, because the Republicans were impeaching, um, I was going to say Donald Trump, Andrew Johnson, that that was a profile in courage, but it was thought that way. He was thought that way because no one wanted to deal with the real issues at stake. And the real issues, as we said before, was not tenure of office. It was not, it was not sex. It was this racial complexion of the country. It was the aftermath of the war. It's what uh, white supremacy would come to mean. And so nobody wanted to look at that. Well, Kansas City voters obviously judged him. He lost his reelection bid. Good. <laughs> How yeah. did... Uh... Well... <laughs> yeah, go ahead. No, no, I was going to say, yeah, he was judged in his own time, and he wrote, you know, sort of um, self-pitying memoirs, which is, I think, what Sorensen used during the research for Profiles and Courage and believed it, because it was convenient to believe it. No one wanted to look, um, you know, at really what happened. The aftermath was Jim Crow. Now, George Clemenceau, who later became the French prime minister, yeah. wrote, quote, Mr. Johnson stands absolutely alone. He is his sole remaining friend. Unhappily, he does not suffice. So how did he emerge from the impeachment battle? Uh, obviously, he didn't run, uh, he didn't become president a, a second term, but he, he did wind up, interestingly, back in the, uh, back in the Senate, where he was reelected to the, the Senate. Senate. <laughs> well, remember, too, in those But then days, he died five months later. Right. But in those days, it was the legislature that sent senators to Washington. They were not elected by popular vote, something that kind of seems astonishing today. So the legislature in Tennessee sent Johnson back. Um, and, and that's in some gruesome understandable. One of the first things that he did when he got back was stand up and harangue against Ulysses S. Grant, whom he hated. 
You know, mm-hmm. he despised Grant, and Grant, um, you know, Grant, if he's famous for anything besides corruption now, it was for putting down the Ku Klux Klan, which, by the way, got its kind of walking papers from Andrew Johnson. It was the Proud Boys of its day. Now, Donald Trump is out of office, and some argue that we should just move forward now. What can be gained from the second impeachment and from further investigation of the Trump administration? And how does it compare with Andrew Johnson, who was leading a country that was emerging from civil war and entering an age of reconstruction? Um, Is the U.S. now undergoing a transition that requires a special kind of leadership? Well, yes, I think it does require a special kind of leadership, but I'm not even sure special. Leadership would be a good thing, leadership that was born out of facts and truth and data and science and debate and, you know, all all the things that we seem to have lost currently um, in the cult of one person. I think that the kind of case that the impeachment managers put on is extraordinarily useful in two ways. One is for the, you know, legacy historical record. I get all of that. It's a little hard to see, you know, looking forward right now since we're immersed in a very difficult time. But for right now, I think it's important that, you know, that some of what they said and how they said it and the videos that they used, they, it's it's in the public record. It was on television. It was on, you know, almost all the channels, I think. It'll be reproduced in social media. That record is there, and I think it's very, very important, and it's unassailable. And whatever you think of Mitch McConnell, and that's another question entirely, um, he stood up, and at least part of what he had to say was a withering and contemptuous indictment of Donald Trump. Was the outcome of, yeah, on hmm? the other hand, he was uh, responsible for uh, delaying the impeachment trial, yes. Uh, yes, yes, which yes. Is, no, was no, the excuse no. that I, he used for not not voting to uh, to convict. So, yeah, no, no, no. His his decision seems to me to have been cynical and political, politically motivated. Mitch know, McConnell, um, Mitch McConnell, cynical. <laughs> Politically motivated? Uh, oh, my God. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. I, I know I'm too strong in my indictment here. <laughs> but I was still surprised at what he said and the vehemence with which he said it. You know, yeah. I mean, it seemed that was real. I mean, it doesn't mean anything, but he wanted that in the historical record for himself, too. So... He's thinking of legacy. You and I may not because we still have to deal with what's going to happen tomorrow and what's going to happen the day after that. But I still think it's very, very important. And I think it was important that it was there, that it happened, that it was broadcast. And I think if you just consider the the opposite, what would have happened if nobody did anything? Mm. That's that's unimaginable that you wouldn't take someone to task for what you know, basically, you know, homicidal intent, you know, uh, tendencies here. I mean, people were killed, maimed, injured, traumatized. The Senate vote in the case of the Trump impeachment was largely yeah. expected. There were a couple of surprises. Yes. What about uh, Andrew Johnson's trial? Was uh, the outcome a foregone conclusion going into the trial? 
what did either Republicans or Democrats expect? Well, no one really knew what was going to happen. And part of the reason, and this would be interesting, you know, when we talk about the historical record, and we may be talking about it next week, that so-called historical record, um, what went on behind the scenes? What were the deals that were being made? Were there deals being made? You know, um, and I think there's, we're going to learn a lot more. We knew it was a foregone conclusion. In the case of Johnson, it was not a foregone conclusion, because when the House voted to impeach, it was an overwhelming vote. But as time went on, and money changed hands, and, you know, favors uh, were, were promised, as in the case of, we mentioned Edmund Ross, that wonderful profile and courage. You know, he wanted to make sure that he got jobs for his friends and for himself. Um, then it became a little bit more difficult. And, you know, and also, it's not inconsequential that this was only three years after a civil war and mm. impeachment had never happened in the country just as assassination never happened and i think there were a lot of people who were just scared so all the democrats voted for impeachment uh and i mean all voted against impeachment in the johnson case and only you mean uh, for, uh against only a, acquittal i mean against yeah, yeah. yeah. is they it all ironic for acquittal yeah. Is it ironic that the uh, the party roles have switched so much? The Democratic and Republican <laughs> parties are quite different ideologically from what they were yeah. in the, the later 1800s into the early 20th century. Well, you can just switch the names in a certain sense. And, and actually, after that impeachment vote, you know, and the Republicans who voted to um, to let Johnson walk really became, to a certain extent, the nucleus of what was called liberal Republicans, and their ideology is very much closer to the Republicans of today. You know, and the Democrats, you know, the Southern Democrats, the Democrats, you know, the Southern Democrats were, we know what they were from the late 20th century, um, you know, when Johnson had to deal with them. Uh, and not Andrew Johnson, but Lyndon Johnson. So that they haven't changed that much. They did change in terms of their racial policies because the Republican Party was founded uh, as an, you know, more or less anti-slavery party. That they didn't want slavery extended uh, in the territories, and so that was interesting in a way. But no, it, it's you know, if you look behind the curtain a little bit in terms of what their fiscal policies were, you know, that you begin to see what their policies on trade uh, were. You know, you begin to see uh, that they're not that different from today. It's just the names get confusing. Uh, some of the uh, irregularities uh, during the, the Trump uh, trial uh, are, are kind of interesting, the, the, the ones who chose not to vote for him. Uh, but but there's a, the, the, there were some Republican senators met with Trump during the trial, and they could have done really? that during a regular trial, and they probably didn't do it. The, uh, the Democrats didn't meet with Johnson during his impeachment, I suspect. 
no, nobody wanted to touch Johnson. You you quoted Clamoso before when he said Johnson is friendless. One of the interesting things that Johnson was able to do was unite everybody against him. You know, the Republicans were a divided party. The Johnson, you know, in in Johnson's day, they were mid, they were middle of the road. They were conservative and they were uh, radicals or progressives. And Johnson united them. And in fact, the Democrats. They didn't want to touch him. They didn't nominate him for the presidential contest in 1868 because, remember, mm-hmm. impeachment of Johnson took place right before a presidential election, which sort of happened with Trump's first impeachment. People were arguing, oh, it's just to you know, let people decide at the polls. Some Republicans are voicing concerns about divisions in their party and even about their party's future. Did Andrew Johnson divide the Democratic Party in 1868? Not so much. Not so much. They wanted, you know, they wanted him excised as toxic, and that's mm-hmm. what they did. And then they went along their merry way, <laughs> you know, nominating you know, basically a very racist ticket, which was not that different from Johnson. But Johnson had been so incendiary. Johnson had harangued so many people. Johnson was a demagogue. And in many ways, he was very much like Donald Trump. I mean, he loved bringing his, you know, his message to the people. He loved his rallies. He loved his base, whatever that was. Um, He called for the hanging of his enemies. Sound familiar? (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Well, he yeah, he uh, <laughs> angered a lot of members of his own party. There had been a, a massacre in New Orleans on July 30th, yeah. 1866. What uh-huh. happened and, and how uh, had uh, Johnson and other politicians responded at the time? And, and I'm wondering if you're seeing any parallels between uh, what happened under <laughs> President Trump in, in Charlottesville, for example, or on January, well, of course, January 6th in Washington. Yeah, well, January 6th in Washington is its own particular horror because it was an effort to actually, um, you know, stop the transfer of power, which is kind of stunning. The 1866 massacre in in New Orleans was the most egregious among many that had happened. There had been one in Memphis and there had been, you know, many in the countryside. And Congress sent, because the Republicans dominated Congress, and it sent an investigating team, and they came back with, you know, record of how horrible it was. But Johnson basically, you know, shrugged his shoulders, and he said that, you know, once again, he blamed the so-called other side. He blamed Thaddeus Stevens and Charles Sumner and the people that I've called uh, the impeachers, basically, for, you know, rousing, you know, you know, making comments and whatever he thought they had done. He, he again, this is interesting, too. He saw himself, and you've heard this in recent days, you, he saw himself as a martyr, as a victim. Mm. Yeah, well... President Trump uh, has has uh, said this was the the greatest witch hunt in the history of the United States. Uh, yeah, I suspect right. I suspect Johnson would have said something similar if he had uh, had if he had, had that uh, terminology. Twitter. Absolutely, if he if yeah, but he would have. He thought that he thought people were out to get him, and he thought he had he basically said to people, um, and and especially when a contingent. 
of black activists came to his office, he basically said, nobody suffered during the war more than me. Nobody has suffered Ooh. more than me. He was talking to former slaves. <laughs> I mean, you, you can't imagine what was in this man's mind. The sad thing is that he believed it. You know, I mean, it, 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 it's, I'm not sure Trump believes it uh, in the sense that I think Trump is more specifically manipulative uh, than Johnson. Johnson was manipulative, you know, make no mistake, and he was horrible in many ways. But I think he really thought what he was doing was right, and he was so benighted that he didn't understand why nobody liked him. <laughs> You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. And let's get back to Brenda Wineapple. Uh, Her book that inspired us to invite her again, Uh, we had a wonderful conversation about it, uh, July uh, 2000, was it 19? Um, The book is The (laughs) Impeachers, so long ago. It seems like a very long time ago. (laughs) The Impeachers, The Trial of Andrew Johnson and the Dream of a Just Nation, published by Random House. who were the leading advocates of impeachment in 1868? Well, outside of Congress, there were people like Frederick Douglass, um, whom everyone I think is familiar with, except Donald Trump, who said that he was doing, you know, that he was getting a lot of attention these days. And there were people like Wendell Phillips, who for a very long time was known as a kind of perpetual and constant gadfly and agitator uh, for all things, women's suffrage, you know, uh, better labor laws, and certainly uh, for abolition. In Congress, in the House, people like Thaddeus Stevens of Pennsylvania, a longtime abolitionist, and in the Senate, people like Charles Sumner, exactly, from Mm -hmm. Massachusetts, the senator from Massachusetts, who had been beaten within an inch of his life for his anti-slavery views Mm. before the war, even. Now, they were known as radical Republicans. Uh, What made them called, led to them being called radical, and how large a faction did the radicals comprise among the Republicans? Well, they were not the entire Republican Party. They were a segment of it, let's say maybe a third of it. Um, They were very important because they are the people who, from within the government, uh, goaded Lincoln to move more quickly outside the government, like in the cases I said of Frederick Douglass, were, were agitating for a more specific prosecution of the Civil War toward Uh, the abolition of slavery. So um, they were not the whole party by any means. There's a conservative bloc in the Republican Party and a a moderate. They were not moderate, um, but they were outspoken. They were quite smart. Um, They were dedicated, um, and they were intent at first on working with Andrew Johnson, whom they felt uh, had been sympathetic 
toward their own goals because he had said treason is a crime and must be prosecuted as such, and they felt that. And they were very adamant about making sure that the former states of the Confederacy got back in the Union only after they passed certain kind of legislation that not only abolished slavery per se, as the 13th Amendment would say it should, but also got rid of all of the rules, regulations, laws that kept black people in an inferior position, denying them the vote, denying them civil rights, denying them the ability to sit on juries, denying the ability to uh, work without contracts, denying them ability to travel freely. And um, Johnson stood opposed to that. Do you see parallels between the Radical Republicans and today's Congressional Progressive Caucus? I suppose there would be. Um, I'm, I'm not comfortable saying yes, for sure, but I think there definitely uh, are that. I think there are more Democrats who are progressive without being in that uh, caucus, um, because uh, certainly on racial views, um, um, I think that, but I think there are definitely uh, parallels to be made, no doubt about it. So um, there, some have argued that progressive Democrats are making polarization worse. Uh, mm -hmm. Was that something that was discussed in the 1860s and 70s? Well, um, not so much in the 1870s, because a lot of the people that I mentioned were either then out of office or uh, or died. That is, Stevens died in 1868, and he was a very strong leader. Um, and um, but I think that no, I I think that there was some conversation. I know there was conversation about them polarizing um, the party or, or certain aspects of the party. But you have to remember, it was such a different time in that Johnson himself was reviled so strongly mm. by, as I said, the conservatives and the moderates, that Johnson actually did work uh, for the Republicans, in a sense, by unifying them. Republicans have accused Democrats of supporting impeachment solely for political gain. What role did uh, politics play in the impeachment of 1868? Political game. You know, of course, they were, they were accused, the, uh, the impeachers were accused of wanting political power. And my, my, it makes me laugh because, of course, they wanted political power. They wanted to pass the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. <laughs> you, you can't do that if you don't have political power. So did they want it for political gain? Absolutely. Is there anything wrong with that? Absolutely not. Because anybody in government is agitating for power to set their agenda. It just so happens that their agenda is, is to my mind, and I think most people's minds now, is is congruent, is the same as that which is articulated in the Declaration of Independence, except the country hadn't gotten there yet. So, yeah, did they want power? Sure, of course. Did they want to keep power? Absolutely. Is there anything wrong with that in the context? No, because so did Andrew Johnson, and he wanted to turn back the clock. He wanted to keep mm. slavery intact, but just calling it something different. 
but but in, in the eighteen sixty six midterm elections, the Republican Party, uh-huh. which was very much the party of Lincoln, increased its numbers in Congress to seventy seven percent of the I seats, know. enough to override any veto by uh, a, a president, uh, right? In that case, Johnson. But would he not? Has is there anything in the written record that indicates how he reacted and whether he thought that was a kind of a a mandate for change? <laughs> no, he thought it was a, he thought it was outrageous. He, he took it personally, as I said before. He you know he was a master of the politics of not just grievance but personal grievance, a victimization. Um, he was being crucified. Um, it just it just made him feel even more that he was right. You know, that all of these people were wrong, and uh, he had to fight for what he considered to be the Constitution, you know, and slavery had been part of the Constitution, and he didn't really understand uh, why everybody was against him. When he died, he was said um, that he was buried with a copy of the Constitution under his head. Mm-hmm. How do you did, think uh, Donald Trump will be buried with a copy of the Constitution <laughs> under his head? I'm not sure that he's read it, but uh, how did how did the uh, the American public see Andrew Johnson when he was impeached? Do we know uh, whether he had a strong public support? And when I say the American public, yeah. should I really say white American men because women couldn't vote and uh, many African Americans were excluded from voting as well? Right. Right. No, you you know because their their literacy was pretty high, um, and even among the former enslaved who are now free, um, there were schools set up. They were learning. You know, people who had been denied the ability to read and write were reading and writing. And if you know, people have read, for example, a good example would be the narrative of, you know, the life of Frederick Douglass talks about how he learned how to read. So it was a reading public in many cases. So whether you could vote or not, people were very well informed. And um, yes, there were a lot of, you know, media outlets, you would say, newspapers that spoke to your own point of view, um, depending on where you lived, you know, so if you were a Democrat, you'd read Democratic papers. But there were huge numbers of papers uh, newspapers that were covering this. And as I said, the Democrats had begun to think, what's wrong with you, Johnson? Why don't you? I mean, he, Johnson went out and campaigned against the ratification of the 14th Amendment. All the 14th Amendment does is guarantee citizenship and due process under the law for everyone, you know, namely former enslaved. Democrats he also vetoed thought, the Civil Rights Act of 1866. Yeah. Yeah, and Congress overrode that Fourteenth Amendment. <laughs> that's why there was the Fourteenth Amendment, because when he vetoed the Civil Rights Act and it was passed over his um, passed over his veto, Congress realized, wait a minute, we better enshrine civil rights in the in, you know in the Constitution rather than just having a law. Given the kind of Johnson that we have here, given that there are more of them out there, so the Democrats felt Johnson, just calm down, just. Go along with the Fourteenth Amendment, you know you'll get more support. Mend some fences. He couldn't do it. He really couldn't do it. It's he interesting that 
That it's interesting that, that a fellow Tennessee Democrat, former President mm-hmm. James Polk, described Andrew mm-hmm. Johnson as very vindictive and perverse in his temper and <laughs> conduct. And now we've mm-hmm. heard similar words used to describe a, a more recent president. But uh, uh, you describe Andrew Johnson as one of the chief architects of his own impeachment. And you write mm-hmm. that he, quote, had a penchant for martyrdom, as you, you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, so what happened to Johnson after he narrowly avoided being convicted in 1868? Mm. Well, as I said, he was one of the chief architects of his own uh, impeachment because he was so incapable of compromising and playing politics in the way that even members of the Democratic Party um, were advising him. So he really... Um, he he really sort of set up the situation where there was a no-win situation, and um, and in many cases, Congress, some radicals had been trying to impeach him long before he was actually impeached, and there had been breaks on, but he just he kept goading people uh, until they finally had to do it. Um, the, the Tenure of Office Act, as we mentioned before, was a was an attempt to rein him in so that they didn't have to impeach him. So you see how that worked out. Afterwards, he was, as I said, surprised and shocked, um, and uh, but he wasn't. You know, it, it was a kind of thing of, you know, I'm not going so quickly, and he came back like a bad penny. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and then he didn't stay in office long because he died. But he was initially, you know, there were people who, as there always will be, people who welcomed him back. Um, but his reputation really never recovered from the impeachment. Um, the The idea of the impeachment is what was... Uh, disregarded and denigrated and criticized. But Johnson, a couple of people in the 1920s saw him as a kind of martyr. But he was no profiles in courage. He wasn't in Kennedy's book. My guest on Leonard Lopate at Large today on WBAI New York 99.5 FM streaming live at WBAI.org is Brenda Wineapple. Um, I can still say your latest book is The Impeachers. Yes. (laughs) The Trial of Andrew Johnson (laughs) and the Dream of a Just Nation, a wonderful book uh, that, uh, uh, well, uh, I think is now considered the book about uh, that moment in history. Uh, Now, in in the aftermath of the Civil War, were there sincere efforts to mend divisions between the North and the South? Uh. Yeah, I su- I suppose there were some, um, not as powerful as you would think, um, in the sense that the South, licking its wounds, you know, sort of developed this whole idea, which actually started, in a sense, under Johnson and perhaps inspired by him, the whole idea of the lost cause, you know, mm-hmm. that we lost, but we really won. Um, and, and we're just now way, taking down the statues that were erected at that time. Exactly. And so that you've got in the 80s, 90s, turn of the tw- in the 19th to the 20th century, you've got these statues going up everywhere of, of Confederate heroes um, mm-hmm. and or so-called 
heroes, and that's really rather remarkable. And so the kind of, quote, healing or reconciliation it was called that went on was a way of trying to bury the past, forget anything happened, say it was a kind of mistake. Um, When I grew up, I, I was told that the Civil War had been fought for economic reasons. And you think, what? What about slavery? I mean, that was an economic reason for sure. But, I mean, but it wasn't really mentioned. And that's, to me, astonishing. And when I began the book, The Impeachers, one of the questions that I had was, why don't I know anything? Why don't I know anything about this? I, I know a fair amount about American history. It's the first ever presidential impeachment why why don't I have any idea of what happened? It must have been horrific. It must have been shocking to be alive in 1868 after you finish a war, see a president mm-hmm. die, and have an impeachment. So what was going on, and why don't we know about it? Well, how did politicians of the time imagine mending those divisions, given the horrors of the war, the emancipation of something like four million slaves in a U.S. that then had a population of around 31 million. Yeah, well, there was a concerted effort, it seems to me, at keeping those former slaves, as I said, enslaved by any other means. You know, Charles Sumner, after the you know the acquittal of Johnson, stood up and he's in the Senate and he said that the impeachment of Andrew Johnson is one of the last battles with slavery, and I thought that was so moving. You know, it must have been moving in the t- at the time, and it was moving when I read it, when I reread it, because what he was saying and what the impeachers were saying is that if you don't do something about Andrew Johnson and, and not just him per se, but what he represents, um, then, which is white supremacy, um, then what you're going to have is a radically unequal, um, unfair, unjust country. And we want something different. And, and we wound up with powerful. Jim Crow and segregation Ex- yes, and yes, the yes, KKK yes. and, and, a, right. a, and a film uh, lauding the KKK being uh, screened in the Birth, White House. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, yep. do you yep. see Woodrow Wilson was a Democrat? He probably the last of the segregationist <laughs> Democrats, wasn't he? Did all that Not change sure he with wasn't FDR? The last. <laughs> I don't think he was the last of them. No, 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 no. You yeah, know, right. <laughs> well, the, the Southern Democrats. <laughs> right. You know, he was. He was. Uh, I don't even was he Southern exactly. I mean, I I don't remember where he's from, but I know that mm-hmm. he said that. Uh, the birth of the he nation. was born in I think he was he was born in the south and uh, uh-huh. but he had become the president of Princeton University Princeton, so that gave right. him some northern cachet I see I see he called but it we history had, written with lightning the the birth of a nation do you see any parallels today with some Republican efforts to suppress voting by African Americans and Latinx citizens? Alas, yes. I mean, I think it's, to me, it's astonishing that that that's still going on in this country. And I think part of the reason is that we have for so long, as I was just saying, buried aspects of our own past and refused to look at the legacy, not just of 
of slavery and racial injustice, powerful as it is, but we've also refused to look at the legacy of those who really wanted to do something different uh, for the country and and who were themselves systematically erased. Back to Birth of a Nation, in that amazing film, awful film, chilling film, there's a character who's based on Thaddeus Stevens. I mean, that's mm. amazing. And he is diabolical. He is, he looks like the devil. I mean, he is horrible in that movie. He's presented that way. And we've come, you know, we, and I think for over a hundred years, a hundred, almost 150 years till very recently, probably more than that, have buried that aspect of the past and and made all of those who were working for racial justice, black and white, into figures of derision. Now, Lindsey Graham has spoken of impeaching Kamala Harris. I'm not exactly sure why. Uh, So uh, (laughs) I guess now impeachment will become a matter of revenge. He said, uh, quote, We've opened Pandora's box here, and I'm sad for the country. Um, I guess he didn't feel that way when Bill Clinton was impeached for having a a minor affair. Um, And the Republican Party became the party of family values, although they then nominated uh, a man who uh, talked about grabbing women by their genitals and having had affairs with with porn stars. So uh, (laughs) I guess guess, um, things... (laughs) The more things are the same, the more they change, or the vice uh, versa. Change, right. <laughs> well, except he was, he, Lindsey Graham's crying crocodile tears, and he was just using that as a weapon. Oh, now we'll be impeaching all of the time. And it was the same thing with Marjorie Taylor Greene. What does she do? She's, she she comes into Congress and immediately calls for the impeachment of Joe Biden. He hadn't, he'd been in office for one day, I think. So I think that that's all just um, theatrics. Um, because I think they're saying that. And that's what I was thinking even before, you know, last week. Um, Oh, if you start impeaching, if you impeach Donald Trump again, then people are just going to be impeaching when somebody doesn't like something. And Mm. I just think that's silly. I think that's silly. That's meant to, to, you know, I don't know, inspire fear or anxiety in people. Nobody means that. I can't believe that. Brenda Wineapple's book, The Impeachers, The Trial of Andrew Johnson and the Dream of a Just Nation, is published by Random House. And Brenda, it's always a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for being on our show again. My pleasure, truly, and a very happy (laughs) President's Day to you, Leonard. Thanks. I'm sorry we had that problem at the beginning. Oh, no, it's nobody's fault. We're in a pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) In case you haven't noticed, in case you've been out recently. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm trapped in uh, a room in in my house doing the show from there and hoping for the best. The last time we talked, we were in the studio. Anyway, I I got to go. That brings us to the end of uh, our show. Special thanks to segment producer Hugh Sansom for preparing today's interview. If you're new to our program and would like to hear more, you can access all of our past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes and anywhere else that podcasts are available. And there are also links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you want to comment on any of our shows or if you just want to say hello, my email address is 
Leonard Lopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to take just a minute to ask you to support WBAI. We're asking all of our listeners who have the finances to do so to step up and make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with by going to give to WBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602 right now to keep the unique in-depth content we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And we need your help to keep this historic station, the only one on the New York City radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored on the air. All you have to do is call 516-620-3602 or go to give2wbai.org to keep London located at large coming to you on WBAI weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And from all of us here at the station, everyone who has contributed so far, thanks. And we hope you'll join us again tomorrow when author, journalist, and regular contributor to our show, Ellis Coase, will discuss the First Amendment issues raised by the January 6th insurrection. I don't think you're going to want to miss that one.